Shula Gosenga Sutta. The shorter discourse at Gosenga. <coughs> and the subject matter of this discourse is the harmonious way of life of three monks who have been staying together in the Gosinga forest, a group led by the Venerable Anuruddha, who is the Buddha's cousin. And the Buddha has come to visit them and after exchanging greetings with these monks, he asked them about the basis by which they are, li- they are living together so harmoniously. And the Venerable Anuruddha explains the principles that the monks observe which enable them to live together so harmoniously that they practice towards each other bodily acts of loving-kindness, verbal acts of loving-kindness, mental acts of loving-kindness. And when they go on alms round, then they make the preparations together and they put away their requisites together. And so by sharing their work and responsibilities, they are able to dwell together in perfect harmony. As Anuruddha says, it is just as though we were though different in body, as if we were one in mind, as if we had the same mind. This is a very valuable lesson at these times when there is so much social conflict and disputes, when people are relating to each other by, not by loving kindness of body, speech, and thought, but violent thoughts, violent speech, violent, brutal actions. Okay, so now continuing the discourse, we come to paragraph number 10. And now, after the Buddha has questioned the monks about their outward modes of behavior, how they relate to each other, he's now going to question them about their inward attainment. And so the Buddha begins by saying that while you are abiding thus diligent, ardent, and resolute, have you attained any superhuman state, any distinction, in knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones a comfortable abiding and here we'll take each of these terms for explanation 
These are some very big words. <laughs> yeah, the word, tra- or the expression translated superhuman state is Uttari Manusa Dhamma. The word Uttari means higher, superior. Manusa is human and Dhamma is state. And the ordinary Manusa Dhamma, the ordinary human states, are the virtuous qualities which are to be embodied in the conduct of human beings. The commentaries mention that these are the the Manusta Dhamma, that these are the ordinary Kusala Kamas, the ordinary types of virtuous or wholesome activities. Abstaining from killing, treating others with kindness, abstaining from stealing and being honest, abstaining from sexual misconduct, abstaining from false speech, and so on. So these ordinary virtuous human qualities are the qualities which lead to higher states, you could say to states of inner progress within the limits of conditioned existence. And the karma generated by these ordinary virtuous states will lead into the birth or the good planes of existence within samsara. They will conduce to a pleasant rebirth either in the human realm or in the celestial realm. Now, Uttari Manusadhamma are virtuous states, wholesome states, which are superior to the ordinary human virtues. These are the states of the meditative attainments and the attainments of insight, path and fruit any state which will lead to beyond the sensuous sphere of existence, either to rebirth in the Brahma-lokas or else to the attainment of the Lokutara path, the transcendental path, the super-mundane path. The expression alam arya jnana dasana visesa, the word alam, you can say, means worthy of, you can say, adequate to. Arya is noble, the noble ones. Jnana dasana is knowledge and vision, and visesa is distinction or excellence. So, alam arya jnana dasana visesa will mean some excellence or distinction in knowledge and vision that is, you say, adequate to the 
Aryans, the noble ones, typical of the Aryans, or perhaps you could say worthy of the noble ones. Then the third expression used here, a comfortable abiding, doesn't mean sitting in a soft, easy seat, lying on a soft But rather it means, it's identical with these attainments in meditation, the attainment of jhanas, of uh, paths or fruits. Okay, so now the interrogation by the Buddha will lead the disciples to reply in a way which takes one through the graduated series, the step-by-step series of the superior of these superhuman states, these distinctions and knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones. And so Anuruddha replies first by showing his attainment or their attainment of the first jhana. Whenever we want, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, we enter upon and abide in the first jhana, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought with happiness and pleasure born of seclusion. I'm not going to give a step-by-step explanation of the jhana. I'm not going to give a factor-by-factor explanation of the jhanas here. I've done that earlier, and then we will be doing it again sometime later when we take a longer sutra that deals in greater detail with this topic. So just... Okay, so I'm not going to give a factor-by-factor explanation of the first jhana, especially since the other jhanas are treated synoptically here. So. We'll just treat it very briefly that the Buddha questions Anuruddha and Anuruddha replies that he and his two companions have all achieved the four jhanas and that each one of these is a superhuman state, a distinction in knowledge and vision which they are able to abide in. Okay, now in paragraph 14, the Buddha takes the inquiry a step further by asking whether they can achieve any superhuman attainment even beyond the fourth jhana. And Anuruddha replies, and he here introduces the attainment of the, what's called the Arupa Samapatis, of the formless or immaterial attainments. (coughs) 
yeah, it's very dim. Okay. Anyway, the four jhanas are grouped together under the name of Rupa Samapattis, which we can call or translate the meditative attainments which pertain to the realm of subtle matter the meditative attainments based on subtle matter. And what this means is that in the jhanic attainments, generally one has an object which has some form, some kind of, at least a degree of substantiality or materiality. For example, one who is, wants to attain the jhanas might take as the object a casino. That's a colored disc, blue, red, white disc, and just focus the mind, the attention on that colored disc, repeating this over and over and over until after some time when his faculties ripen, he will acquire an inwardly visualized representation of that colored disc. And so the meditator will leave the actual physical disc aside and concentrate the mind on that inwardly visualized form. Then, as his practice progresses, that visualized form will give rise to some more subtle form, which is supposed to be very bright, beautiful, and free from any kind of visible defects. In the actual physical object, if it's a color disc, there might be little variations in the color, maybe a darker blue here, a lighter blue there. But in the visualized image, the object is free from any kind of defects. It's said to be like, just like the disk of the full moon coming out from behind the clouds. And this form, this image, is the object for each of the four jhanas. In each successive jhana, the object will become more refined, but each of the jhanas takes that form as its object. Now, to pass beyond the fourth jhana, the yogi or meditator first has to achieve mastery over all four jhanas. Then he will take the particular nimitta or form that is his object, say a blue casino, a blue disc, and extend the range of that form so that at the beginning it's just occupying a limited portion of his inwardly visualized field of vision but he will extend that object till it becomes wider and wider, 
more and more encompassing until he can extend it so that it becomes virtually infinite in range so that the whole visual field is covered with this blue luminous blue light but still the attainment is based on this form now when the meditator wishes to pass to the formless attainment what he has to do is to in a sense we say pull away that visible form that mentally visualized form from the field of attention and he does this by disregarding the form and just fixing the mind on the space over which the form is extended and so as he continues to fix his attention in this way eventually when all of the faculties mature that visible form will disappear and all that remains will be the infinity of space and that will mark the attainment of the base of infinite space the first formless or immaterial attainment in which the object is just that infinite space that had been occupied by that extended blue form okay so now Anuruddha explains how he and his companions attain the base of infinite space he says here venerable sir whenever we want with the complete surmounting of perceptions of form that is rising or elevating the mind beyond the perception of any type of form not only material forms that we see with the eyes but even these subtle forms that make up the object of the jhanas with the disappearance of perceptions of sensory impact with non-attention to perceptions of difference or diversity aware that space is infinite we enter upon and abide in the base of infinite space and this is another superhuman state which we have attained by surmounting the previous attainment by making that attainment subside okay and now the Buddha continues the questioning he says is there any other superhuman state beyond the base of infinite space that you've achieved and Anuruddha says that there is and now he explains how they attain the base of infinite consciousness which is the second immaterial attainment 
Now this attainment is entered when it's entered upon the foundation of the base of infinite space. And so now the yogi attains the base of infinite space and masters that attainment so that whenever he wants he can enter into the base of infinite space and be aware of space as all-pervading. Now to overcome that base and to attain the base of nothingness, he has to give attention to the fact that what is aware of the infinity of space is his mind, that is consciousness. And so if space is infinite and the mind or consciousness is aware of infinite space, then there must be some aspect of consciousness which is infinite, which is all-pervading. And so, instead of attending to space as being infinite, he gives attention to consciousness as infinite, just attending over and over Consciousness is infinite. Consciousness is infinite. Consciousness is infinite. Then by repeatedly developing the mind in that mode, when his faculties mature, then the mind will make that leap from the base of infinite space to the base of infinite consciousness. It seems that various systems of spiritual systems, the yogis have reached this base of infinite space and base of infinite consciousness, and so they develop philosophical systems, metaphysical systems, based on the premise that consciousness is the ultimate reality, all-pervading, infinite, immortal, everlasting and so on. But in the Buddhist, this system of the Buddhist teachings, these are just attainments in the sphere of concentration or serenity. They are not yet the liberative attainments to be reached by wisdom. And so now the Buddha inquires from Anuruddha and his friends whether they have reached any attainment beyond the base of infinite space. And they say that they have, and what they have reached is the base of nothingness. This sounds very mystical, but in the Buddha system, it's not really a mystical state, but it's a meditative attainment which is entered into just by attending to a particular aspect of experience. Now, after the meditator, the yogi, has mastered the base of infinite consciousness,
and he knows about the base of nothingness, he knows that the base of infinite consciousness is not the last step and so wishes to go beyond to reach the base of nothingness, he will attend to what is called the empty or non-substantial nature of consciousness, of that, especially of that infinite consciousness which is realizing the infinity of space. When one looks for any kind of substance or solidity in that consciousness, one doesn't come up with anything. And so it seems that that consciousness is just transparent or void or nothing. From one angle we can say it's nothing. And so the yogi will focus the mind upon that transparent or void or insubstantial nature of consciousness, considering that there's nothing here, nothing here, reflecting in that way over and over. And when this is done, eventually, if his faculties are mature enough, he'll reach the base of nothingness. Okay, then the Buddha takes the question, the questioning, one step further, asking whether they have achieved any state, superhuman state, which is higher, superior to the base of nothingness. And they reply, yes, we have. We have, we enter and abide in the base of neither perception nor non-perception. Neva sanyana sanyayatra samapati. And this state is achieved by contemplating one takes as the basis the base of nothingness and one considers that within the base of nothingness perception has become so extremely refined that one cannot even say whether it exists or not. And so one contemplates the base of nothingness in this way until one reaches this fourth immaterial attainment, the base of neither perception nor non-perception, in which the consciousness, the perception, becomes so refined that one cannot say that it exists clearly performing the ordinary function of perception. And yet one cannot say that perception does not exist because there is some perception there. It's just an extremely fine, extremely subtle state. In fact, within the ordinary, well, let's say, within the continuum of mundane consciousness, 
all the ways from the grossest type of sensory consciousness to the extreme peak of refined meditative consciousness, this attainment, this fourth immaterial attainment, is the ultimate peak in the development of mundane Lokia consciousness. And these eight states together, the four jhanas and the four immaterial attainments, these are called the eight samapatis, the eight meditative attainments which belong to the scale of samadhi, concentration. They are reached through the development of the faculty of concentration. They do not yet involve the development of insight or wisdom, panya, but also they can be achieved without the knowledge or understanding of the Buddha's teaching. They're not necessarily tied to the doctrinal structure of the Buddha's Dhamma. And in fact, before the Buddha's enlightenment, when he was still a bodhisattva, a seeker of enlightenment, when he renounced the palace and went into the forest to find a teacher who would lead him on the way to enlightenment, First, he came to one distinguished meditation master called Alara Kalama, who taught him how to achieve the base of nothingness, the third attainment. Then, the Buddha, or the Bodhisattva, having mastered that attainment, realized that this attainment by itself is not capable of bringing enlightenment. And so he left that teacher and went in search of another teacher. Then he met another teacher called Uddhaka Ramaputta, who taught him the way to the fourth formless attainment, the base of neither perception nor non-perception. And the Bodhisattva mastered this fourth attainment and recognize the same thing, that this attainment itself is not the means to deliverance, to Nibbana. Then he left all teachers and struggled on, pursues these on their own and becomes, and enjoys them and becomes attached to them, then they will become karmic forces which propel rebirth in various higher realms of existence. All of them are far beyond the human realm, even the celestial heavenly realm. The four rupa samapatis, the four jhanas, by themselves will bring rebirth into the 
what's called the Brahmaloka or the Rupa Dhatu, that is the realm of subtle matter, the world of the Brahma deities. And in that realm, the lifespan is far, far longer than the human realm. The beings are very blissful, tranquil, utterly beyond sensuality. And they abide for aeons. But in the end, that karma wears out and they have to be reborn elsewhere. Those who develop the arupa attainments, the formless attainments, generate karma which is so powerful that it propels the mind even beyond the reach of matter so that when those beings take rebirth they re-arise in realms in which there is no material substance at all. This is the Arupa Loka, the formless world and the names of those worlds are the same as the attainments. This will be the sphere of infinite space, the sphere of infinite consciousness, the sphere of nothingness, the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception. And through most of their life there, the beings will just be absorbed in these deep meditative states. Just utterly beyond the reach, the impingement of any disturbance by sensory objects, not even the trouble or disturbance from material form. But still, underlying that attainment, there is a very subtle attachment and clinging. And that attachment and clinging is the you say the fetter which keeps those beings bound to the round of existence to samsara and so the buddha emphasizes not this exclusive path of concentration to these attainments but the development of insight or wisdom. And so now in section 18 of the Sutta, he asks Anuruddha whether they have reached any attainment which is superior to the base of neither perception nor non-perception. And Anuruddha says that they have, and he says that we enter and abide in the perception of, um, we enter and abide in the cessation of perception and feeling and our taints, our asafas, are destroyed by our seeing with wisdom. 
Here he points to their possession of the superior attainment called Niroda Samapati. This is an attainment which can be reached only by non-returners and arahants who have the eight samapatis, the eight attainments of serenity. If they have the eight attainments of serenity and also have the state of non-return or arahantship, then they're able to reach the state in which all perception and all feeling come to a stop. That is Niroda Samapati, the attainment of cessation. And they have not only that, but he says that our defilements, the asapas, are destroyed by seeing with wisdom. This means that they have developed their wisdom to the degree that it has uprooted all of the kilesas, the defilements, the asapas or taints. So in effect he is saying that we are all arahants. And then he underscores the point that this is the highest possible attainment at the last sentence in this section he says and venerable sir we do not see any other comfortable abiding higher or more sublime than this one and then the Buddha congratulates them and says good good Anuruddha there is no other comfortable abiding higher or, mo or more sublime than that one. And that underscores the point that in the Buddha system this is the highest possible attainment. It's the attainment of our hardship together with the eight meditative attainments of serenity and the ability to enter the attainment of cessation. Okay, and now this is what comes next is an interesting passage. The Buddha, after this conversation, he must have given a little discourse to the monks there's not much he could <laughs> instruct them in anymore, but just perhaps gave them some words of appreciation and congratulations. And then he got up from his seat and left. And now the other monks come up to Venerable Anuruddha and they ask him, they say, have we ever told the Venerable Anuruddha that we have obtained those abidings and attainments which you said when the Buddha was present, which you said that we have been able to achieve all the ways up to the destruction of the defilements. 
And I find this interesting because here are three monks who are very, very close friends and living together in perfect harmony and, yet, and they've all reached the highest attainment of our hardship and yet their modesty is so great that they don't go around claiming to each other I have achieved that, I have achieved this but they just keep completely complete discretion about their own attainments you know we know sometimes if one achieves just a little success and concentration then one thinks that one has reached some superior attainment and one wants to go around telling everybody about it <laughs> maybe to write articles for the newspapers saying that I've reached this I've reached that but here are monks who are living together on the closest of terms and yet their sense of self-effacement is so great that they don't boast to each other what their attainments are. And so Anuruddha says, he replies, that the venerable ones have never reported to me that they have obtained those abidings and attainments. Yet by encompassing your minds with my own mind, I know that you have obtained these attainments. That is, Anuruddha, as I explained last week, was a disciple who excelled in the faculty of the divine eye, and he also had the ability to read the minds of others very easily. And so by projecting his own mind out, he was able to discover for himself that his companions had reached those attainments. And also deities, certain deities, devas, who have the ability to read the minds of others, also reported to Anuruddha that his friends had reached these attainments. Anuruddha, <laughs> because of his <coughs> his you say, competence or outstanding skill in the exercise of these supernormal faculties was often able to make contact with many, many different <coughs> communities of the devas and he could meet them and enter into discussions with them. And so in that way he was able to obtain this information from the devas. And since he got this information both through his own ability to read the minds of others and also from the devas, therefore, he says, I answered the way I did when I was directly questioned by the Blessed One. Okay, and now we come to a very, very impressive ending to the sutta. There's a certain spirit or yaka that seems to be not one of these harmful yakshayas, but a benevolent, good-natured yaka spirit called Diga Parajana. I don't know too much about him. 
But anyway, he was witnessing this discussion between the Buddha and the monks. And at the end of the discussion, he came to the Buddha, paid homage to him, and he stood at one side and said, It is a gain for the Bhajians, a great gain for the Bhajian people, that the Tathagata, enlightened one, dwells among them and these three clansmen, the Venerable Anuruddha, the Venerable Nandiya, and the Venerable Kimila. Then when the spirit Digaparajana made the statement, then the earth god the Bhumadevas heard him and they made the same statement. They repeated to the Buddha, they exclaimed out loud, it is a gain for the Bhajian people, a great gain for the Bhajian people that the Buddha, the Blessed One and these three clansmen led by Anuruddha is living amongst them. Then when the earth gods gave that exclamation, then the gods of the Chattu Maharajika heaven, the heaven of the four great kings, then above them the gods of the Tabatingza heaven, the heaven of the 33, the Yama gods, the Tusita gods, the gods who delight in creating, that's the Nimanarati devas, the gods who wield power over others' creations, and the Brahma Devas, the gods of Brahma's retinue, also gave the same exclamation, it is a gain for the Bhajians, a great gain for the Bhajian people, that the Tathagata, the perfected one, and these three enlightened disciples are living amongst them. And so right at that instant, at that moment, this exclamation, human realm, all the way up through these different celestial, first these realms of devas who are living in proximity to the earth, the earth deities. Then from the earth deities up through the celestial heavenly realms from one celestial heavenly realm to another and you have to realize that in each of these heavenly realms there are maybe hundreds of thousands of deities <laughs> and so it's going all the ways up even to the Brahma realm right at the <coughs> base of the realm of pure form <laughs> This is one of those scenes for which I want to get a movie director to film, to make a movie, <laughs> and to give directions on how it should be done. <laughs> One could see that each of these heavenly realms will have to be depicted on film as being somewhat subtler and more transparent and more luminous than the one below it so that you'll get the scene 
on the bottom of the screen, these, maybe you have these monks in one corner of the screen, of the, uh, of the screen, the Buddha with this yaka on the other corner. Then you have this light coming up, getting brighter and brighter as one goes up from one realm to another, till at the top of the screen where you come to the Brahma realm, the light just becomes so bright and intense that one can barely focus <laughs> one's eyes on it. <laughs> Okay, and now then, the whole, all of the celestial realms then sort of black out or fade out one by one till we come back down to the bottom of the screen and we have a a close focus upon the Buddha in conversation with this yaka again. And so then the Buddha hails that statement by (laughs) by by the yaka so it is, Diga, so it is. And he says, if the family from which these three clansmen went forth from the home life into homelessness should remember them with a confident heart, that is, with a heart full of faith and reverence and devotion and respect, that would be long for the welfare and happiness of that clan, that family. Because by thinking of those clansmen who have reached the highest attainment, the fruit of our hardship, by thinking of that, of thinking of them with a pure heart of faith, love, devotion and reverence that will generate tremendous purity in their own minds and it will create a great accumulation of punya, of merit, which will come to their benefit in future lives and could even bring the attainment of some realization in this very life. Now, the Buddha is going to expand this uh, reference horizontally instead of going ver- vertically the way the different layers of the heavenly worlds build up one upon another. The Buddha is going to extend the same statement horizontally to wider and wider sections of human society. Okay. If the retinue of that clan should remember these three clansmen in such a way, if the village from which they went forth, the town, the people in the town from which they went forth, the people in the city from which they went forth, the people in the country from which they went forth, from the home life into homelessness should remember them with confident heart. That would be long for the welfare and happiness of that country. And now the Buddha will go through the different classes of society. If all the nobles, the kshatriyas, should remember them, if all the brahmins, if all the vaishyas, 
the merchants and landowners, if all the workers, the shudras, should remember them, these three clansmen with a confident heart, that would be long for the welfare and happiness of those workers. If the whole world with its gods, its maras and its brahmas, this generation with its recluses and brahmins, its princes and its people should remember these three clansmen with, conf with a confident heart, that would be long for the welfare and happiness of the world. See, Diga, how those three clansmen are practicing for the welfare and happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the good welfare and happiness of gods and humans. In that way the Buddha is extolling these three clansmen in the very highest terms. Even though they are living very, very quiet, secluded, meditative lives, and yet in their quietness and seclusion, because they have reached the very highest achievement possible, not only in the human world, but in sentient existence, those three clansmen are serving as a basis or foundation for others to accumulate the highest possible merit by reverencing the Sangharatana, the true gem of the Sangha, of the spiritual community. And so in that way, just by living as they are, these three clansmen are living out of compassion for the world, for the welfare and happiness of the entire world. And just through this very short sutta that has come down to us from 2,500 years, we ourselves, by able to, being able to recollect these three noble disciples are also able to reap the fruits of their compassion for us. Okay, and with this the sutta concludes and the spirit Diga Parajana delighted in the Blessed One's words. Okay, though it's rather dark for me even to see any hands that there has to be raised. But if anybody has any questions, I think you'll have to shout out since I can no longer see the hands. If there are any questions, though, then please feel free to ask. Now, I wanted to mention just before people leave that next week I will not be holding the class, but in two weeks I will hold it. And then in, we will take next time Sutta number 32, which is the longer, disc, the great discourse at Gosinghe.
Yeah, after that I will make photocopies of one more sutta. Then after that, then I will take a little break for some time and then we'll continue again later. Yeah. I wonder why they didn't come and tell the other two about the other two of the same. Yeah. I wonder why they didn't come and tell the other two about the other two of the same. It seems that Anuruta had a special unusual facility to enter into contact with the deities and to engage in conversation with them. Whereas most likely these other monks didn't have that facility. That's the, the only explanation I can think of. Calipat. Excuse me? Calipat. Um, I don't know if it's actually technically called telepathy. Telepathy... What is the technical definition of telepathy? The ability to read the minds of others. Well, he has that ability, but the ability to enter into conversation with the deities, I think it's more than telepathy that he's actually able to tune into the Deva world, these Devas and their, their worlds, so that he could enter into conversation with them, just the way human beings enter into conversation with each other. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.